Welcome back to Season 2 of the ACES Podcast. In this episode of the ACES Podcast, I have a conversation with ACES Associate Investigator and Senior Lecturer in Ethics at the University of Tasmania, Dr. Frederick Gilbert. We speak about his background in philosophy, coming to ACES and joining the Ethics and Bionics Program as Associate Leader, his research and collaborative work that is featured in the media, including The New Yorker, Life in Tasmania, and much more. So with all that said, let's get to the episode. So I'm chatting with ACES Associate Investigator and Senior Lecturer in Ethics at the University of Tasmania, Dr. Frederick Gilbert. Thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me, Sam. And we've never met face to face, but here we are meeting over Zoom. I feel like I've met so many people in the last year over Zoom. Uh, how has, you know, firstly, the last year or so been for you? You're down in Tasmania. I'm up here in, in Wollongong. COVID's obviously um, knocked us all back a little bit, um, but we're, we're managing and we're still being able to research and do other things. Uh, how's it been for you? Uh, well, we are being extremely fortunate here in Tasmania. Uh, we had uh, our last uh, confinement back in April. I think that's like a year now. We didn't have any cases. And next semester will be full blast uh, uh, where we were a year ago. Uh, and uh, yeah, but it has been challenging. We had to convert everything online. Teaching was online. And um, as such, uh, it was an interesting time and, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, we're everywhere uh, uh, we're affected in Australia. But if we if we dare comparing ourselves with uh, the rest of the planet, we 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 are, we are very very fortunate. Um, and um, yeah, the right decision we we're taking at the right time, I think, for us. Definitely. <laughs> and uh, we'll get into what you're doing um, currently in a moment. But first of all, I want to go um, back a little way and in, into yes. your background. Uh, so, why philosophy in in the, the beginning? <laughs> That's a good question. Right? <laughs> uh, I'm not even sure I have a clear answer. Uh, I, I, I was being a bit uh, fascinated by the the concept of freedom. You know, for instance, if if you survey, uh, let's say, hundred people uh, in the street today, I'm sure ninety nine point nine of them will say, uh, "Yes, I'm a free person. I have free will." I decide what I want to decide and nobody forced me to, to make this decision. And I've always been quite curious about this feeling of optiminess. And especially when you think to start to analyze how this feeling is uh, accurate and how it might actually reflect a form of ignorance on the cause or the determination that are pushing us in deciding whether or not we want some chocolate or vanilla, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I guess and philosophy was a nice way to address, uh, well, to address that curiosity. And, and um, uh, yeah, I've, this is the short answer. I've always been fascinated with self-determination, sovereignty, um, but yeah, so when you apply that to, to human, it's, it's quite uh, uh, yeah, interesting to see how, how we, we, we sort of uh, build or illusion, keep them alive and <laughs> try to justify them through our uh, so-called free choice in a way. So your PhD was in philosophy and also bioethics, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So I, I, I'm a, I've trained in philosophy at the University of Geneva. Uh, I 
was sitting uh, within the Institute for Biomedical Ethics, uh, which was associated with the School of Medicine. So I was basically a student in philosophy, but my PhD was what was touching questions associated, yeah, with free will, uh, determinism, uh, responsibilities, and yeah. So that was broadly construct in in, in bioethics slash neuroethics, and uh, and yeah. So I guess for some my my. My colleagues in philosophy, I'm not a real philosopher because I, I, I work on uh, concrete and tangible uh, questions. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, I never really had the privilege to only do some what we call metaphysical ontology uh, because my, my scholarship was somehow tied to some, you know, uh, notion that you need to crystallize through, uh, you know, evidence-based decision. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess why and when did you decide to do a PhD? I mean, was your undergrad in philosophy uh, yeah. as well? Yeah, that's correct. So uh, I did a master in philosophy as well, my bachelor in philosophy. And uh, after my master, uh, I was sort of uh, approached and told that they were they were they had a scholarship to work uh, yeah, on the notion of free will. Uh, and yeah, so uh, Bernard Barchi uh, at the time uh, yeah, approached me and he was a very uh, lovely and a great professor. Then um, I started to do my PhD under the, him and Alex Moreau and Samia, Samia Erse yeah, uh, at the School of Medicine. And um, yeah, so I was spending a lot of my time within the uh, frontier and genetic labs. So. My, many of my colleagues that were receiving the same scholarship uh, were, well, let me rephrase that. So part of my scholarship was funded by a genetist. So they were working on ox gene, the ox gene are, are those that determine where your finger will be, where your uh, end will be. So if you just move the, the, the position of these genes, you will have different outcomes. So they, they were very curious to analyze the notion of determinism through the process and as such free will, the brain. And so most of my colleagues receiving the, that type of scholarship were sitting in the that, that lab. So they were hardcore geneticists. So I was spending a lot of time with them. And um, yeah, it has somehow, uh, I would say, impacted my way of thinking about uh, yeah these concepts and uh, these philosophical concepts, if I may say so. Interesting. So are you originally from um, Switzerland in Geneva? No, so I'm a French Canadian. So I've grown up south of Quebec City, midpoint between Quebec City and the American border uh, in a town called Saint-Joseph-de-Beauce. Uh, <laughs> this town is uh, mostly known for uh, being the first sort of white settler place across the valley. So the these villages are mostly built along a big river. The river is called Rivière Chaudière, the bucket river in English it would be. <laughs> and uh, the, the place is well known because uh, also every spring there is a traditional flooding. So as you know, in Quebec, there's a lot of snow and obviously that snow needs to melt every spring. And because it, it is into a valley, the snow accumulates so the, the, the somehow the highs break somehow accumulate when the river and the valley is a bit narrower and then you have these, spectac these spectacular flooding every spring and it's very, very beautiful obviously also damage a lot 
villages and towns. So one could ask oneself, why did people <laughs> build their village there and <laughs> town there and why they're still living there? Obviously, I guess it's a nice tradition. Uh, but then here we're back to the notion of sovereignty, self-determination, freedom. Why <laughs> do you choose these things? And I guess somehow it has indirectly impacted my way of thinking about freedom. Yes. Yeah, very interesting. <laughs> uh, then why did you decide to go to the University of Geneva in Switzerland? Yeah, this one is a bit, uh, so <laughs> I want to make it short. So <laughs> one of us, uh, because actually it's, it's a very prestigious uh, university, uh, not only for the French speaker, but also internationally, Geneva, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a tiny village with a, 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 a prestige of a big, big international town. So, but the, the, the little story is that, um, or the long story is that when I was 19, I was playing sport. So uh, I, I played sport in, in France. Well, just out of high school, I had a salary and uh, the, the team was providing us with a car and apartments. I was playing uh, American football and, oh, wow. and we're playing in a town close to Geneva. And once I was driving with one of my colleagues, Pascal Lehou, and we drove through the town and I thought, oh, that's so beautiful. I have to come back here. And anyway, a year later, I was 20. I, had I did injure myself, couldn't play any more sport. And then I had this these few months where I wasn't really well. And I thought, oh, let's just, I need a break. I need a break for myself. I will just uh, enroll in Geneva. And then I was selected and long story short, I was supposed to stay there like six months and then I spent it almost 11 years. Yeah, well, I can see why I've been to Geneva. Um, yeah, I was actually only there for one day. It was sort of like a, a stopover uh, and I caught a flight out of there, but it was a beautiful place. I had lunch there on the water and um, yeah, I yes. can see why it would be an appealing place to live. <laughs> yes, exactly. No. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you finish your PhD and then yep. on to um, your postdoctoral career. How did you find that transition from uh, student to postdoctoral researcher? Yeah, so uh, I uh, I was fortunate. So uh, I did my first postdoc under uh, Francoise Bailey's leadership. So I actually, I, I did receive my postdoc or my, my offer of postdoc prior finishing my PhD. Right. So it was pretty fast for me from that moment. But the, the challenge for me, the challenges were for me uh, the... The necessity to to publish so obviously as you know mm -hmm. now in academia you, you need to publish or you perish it's, it's, it's <laughs> reality and so i had to jump out of a french-speaking uh university uh, where i've published in french a, a quarter a paper in french but also my thesis was in french so i had to convert everything in english so the first few months were quite difficult in a way and uh but you know my, my you know Francoise was was excellent was very fortunate uh, to be uh, under our, uh, our leadership. And um, and so the question is how I found it, this transition. It, it, it was, I think, uh, from a revelation for me. <laughs> when you do your PhD, you, you spend about three years wondering what you do uh, and why you're doing it. And, uh, and when you do a postdoc, you realize that you're doing plenty of tiny PhD thesis, and instead of spending three years on it, you can spend three three months in a way. So <laughs> I, I thought for me it was quite uh, appealing, and um, and yeah, it's it's my first postdoc was in two thousand eight, two thousand nine actually, uh, and I had uh, I've survived it. Yes, I stress <laughs> my word, survived it on postdoc for almost ten years after that. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, and then I met Sue Dodd in 2010. Yep. She was a uh, uh, touring <laughs> Canada or the planet, uh, <laughs> talking about her research, and I sort of uh, felt that her, her research was were, were really important, and it sort of uh, was a sort of a reminder or a reminiscence of my work on free will because she was you know talking about these nanotechnologies. Uh, she was at the time associated with ISIS. She's still obviously, but back in 2010, she was our, I think she was the only ethicist working for, for ISIS. And this is how I, uh, I sort of applied for a, a research, research fellowship uh, at UTS. And yeah, this is how I converted to uh, working to ISIS. That was uh, my next question. I was going to ask um, how did it come about, you know, moving uh, to ISIS and to uh, UTAS? Um, I believe that you, you moved on to ethics and bionics. Yeah, associated uh, program leader. Yeah, associated with Sue, yeah. Yeah, so uh, what did that exactly involve? So um, it was a way for ACES to train their uh, future researcher to gain some autonomy and to enhance their ability to seek for a form of independence in the way that they approach and they establish their protocol. I think it was a great thing that they have established at the time. Uh, so uh, in my case, I have no merit because uh, Sue was the leader. I was the only research fellow in ethics and we had uh, the great uh, Aliza Godar uh, with us at the time. So naturally the, the offer was given to me. <laughs> so th there's no merit. So, But I, I was very lucky to uh, benefit uh, from uh, ACES uh, opportunities, and this is somehow how uh, I started to work with uh, Alex Aris uh, and um, also with uh, Robert Casper, and um, and after that with uh, Mark Cook, etc. Yeah, so ACES, and you know, we'll talk a little bit more about um, what you're currently doing with ACES. But I guess ACES for you know people listening is very interdisciplinary. How did you find that? You know, working alongside you know um, cell biologists and um, you know all these different researchers from different walks of um, life or research. <laughs> yeah, so uh, for me, it was uh, it wasn't it was you know interesting. It wasn't it was challenging, but in a good sense of the words, because as I mentioned, when I did my PhD. Uh, most of my funding, my scholarship was, was supported by uh, geneticists. So, you know, hardcore biologists only looking through their, their, their tool. To, so um, I remember my first ever presentation was in front of 300 biologists and I was the only uh, social science slash philosopher. So I, I, only, I, I, I already had some experience. So when I, I went to ISIS, it wasn't new to me. I, was, uh, I had some experience. And I was very uh, lucky then to uh, get uh, working with Alex very quickly and, and Rob, and we started to publish a couple of papers, comment, uh, and and so on. So, um, and I think the the secret is that we we as ethicists we need to get closely to some of the question and issue that uh, scientists are facing. Um, and we, we shouldn't isolate it or, um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, actually what I've discovered is that most of my colleagues uh, in ACES uh, already were aware of many issues that they were facing 
uh, and uh, ethical issue or moral issues and they never really knew how to articulate them mm. or where to talk about it so I, I think yeah ASUS was and still is an extraordinary uh, platform to hello very important multidisciplinary work to be done and you know we're talking about impactful work that reach through a different channel but also you know large audience dissemination where people are interested by what we've where we did and what we have done actually and still doing yes yeah certainly and uh, you also moved on to a um, position at the university of washington is that correct yes yeah, so i had a fellowship for uh, a year with a great team uh uh, and, uh, you know, work was uh, tremendous, uh, was specifically looking at brain-computer interface, the ethics of brain-computer interface. Um, and, but at the same time, uh, I had my DECRA, so I sort of suspended the DECRA to get that the fellowship. I, I could right. have stayed longer in, in, in Seattle, so they, they did, but uh, I wanted to get back down here. And also I had a daughter and, right. you know, it's... Uh, but I, I, that being said, the, the, the work is just uh, extraordinary. And, uh, and yeah, down in Australia, Tasmania, we're very fortunate. Yeah, Tasmania is beautiful. I've been been many times. I'm very, I mean, Wollongong is a beautiful place as well. But yes. um, but I, I always say to people, if I didn't live in Wollongong, I think Tasmania would be my next um Don't tell people they would come. Live. Don't tell anyone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll keep that between, yeah, between the two exactly. of us. And the audience, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I might have to edit that part out. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you mentioned there, obviously you went back to um, UTAS, back to Tasmania, um, and you're now an um, ACES associate in, investigator. So yeah. I guess, what are you currently um, working on? Yeah, so I'm still uh, working on the uh, ethics of uh, invasive neural devices or neural technologies. Lately, with AI system running these devices, so um, at ASIS, uh, uh, we were very lucky to be involved with some first in human clinical trial. And out of these trial, we were able to gather a lot of uh, interesting data. So some of my projects look at the phenomenology of being implanted with these medical devices and try to understand the subjective experience of living in the world with these devices and how it somehow rupture or uh, drastically change their self-understanding, uh, how it may change their identity, personality, agency, authenticity, self, et cetera, et cetera. So it was one of, one of the projects that uh, we are uh, working on. And, uh, and surpri not surprisingly, because these are very interesting and important questions. Sorry, I should not say that. <laughs> Self-promotion, my apologies. Uh, so, but yeah, interestingly, th these, these results, these findings have actually captured a lot of media attention. And I'm talking about uh, inter international media looking into our studies and it sort of started out of the blue by, by nature, featuring uh, the result, and then it led to some interview in Germany uh, last week in Spain, and then uh, some uh, interesting contribution to uh, or citation and in, 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 in policies and et cetera. So, you know, it's, it's and everything started in a way from a, uh, a lunch break, uh, ACES during a, <laughs> a workshop, 
Mark was next to the table having a coffee and I sort of started to chat with him and out of this sort of a random conversation, all, all this was created. That, that's why ACES is so important and uh, has done so much great and, and, and I would say seminal work in some respect uh, to some, of, some aspect of the multidisciplinary collaborative work. Hope it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, you mentioned, you know, media coming out of, you know, the work you do and the, the collaborations yeah. that you're involved in with it in ACES and uh, something that, you know, I spoke to you recently via email and, um, you know, mm -hmm. people have been talking about within ACES within group meetings and whatnot is the, the work that was recently featured in the New Yorker. I just wanted yeah. to know sort of um, how that experience, um, how was that experience and how did that, that exactly come about? Yeah, so they they uh, they picked up our study published in uh, science, ethics, and engineering, and also they read the the piece in Nature, and uh, they they you know sort of designed the entire five thousand word article in the New Yorker on our study basically. So they reached out to two of the patients, uh, and yeah, we're trying to see the the phenomenological effect of uh, estrangement and embodiment of brain-computer interface on the individual. So I think it's, it's uh, quite um, um, you know, an education of how ACES work is a part of a, a very essential conversation that we should have about this conversation and how patient experience has to be taken into account very early in the design of these technologies. And uh, um, yeah, but and just but, but in terms of media, that's funny because they, they sent that journalist down here in Tennessee, she spent three three days and we you know, spent time on the campus downtown. So it was quite interesting to, uh, and you know, and the New Yorker uh, is a quite a, an interesting magazine, uh, very yeah. old, almost hundred years old. and. Uh, Self-proclaim itself to be the most influential magazine <laughs> on the planet. I will, I will let them comment on that. I mean, that's their comment. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that's interesting to 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 have a uh, ACES work uh, portrait into that. And um, and uh, and since there, yeah, we have a couple of um, you know, media uh, requests. And uh, yeah, we'll see. Great, great. Well, yeah, congratulations on all the success and, um, you know, how far you've come with the research and the collaborations within ACES. And yeah, it's great to see, um, you know, work being recognized and, you know, being written about so more people, I guess, can understand it and understand what, you know, goes on. Uh, all the credit goes to uh, great work done in ACES and obviously the, the, the patient that um, we're, you know, the yeah. first one in line. And obviously, because without them, there would be no innovative medical science without, yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, before I let you go, you know, I've got to yep. speak a little bit about, um, you know, life outside of um, your work, outside of research. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, I ask everyone that I get on if they've got some sort of routine, maybe a morning routine or something they do every every day. It might be as simple as, you know, starting your day with a cup of coffee. I, I seem like seem to get that quite a lot. But is there something you do um, every day that helps you uh, tackle your day? Well, lately, uh, my daughter is overseas. So as you know, we cannot travel. I haven't seen her for a while. Uh, so yes, my morning starts with a conversation with a, a, <laughs> a digital conversation. So I guess that's how uh, my day starts. But I, yeah, so uh, I, I like also hiking around, walking around. So uh, it's, uh, and as you know, Tasmania is a, uh, don't tell anybody, it's uh, <laughs> the best place to hike in Australia. Uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, that's how I, I start my day. I don't drink coffee or I don't even have a mobile phone. So it's hard for me to do the rest. 
Well, you've got plenty of hikes that can make up for that. So yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm very jealous. <laughs> um, I'm wondering if, if you weren't doing this for a living, is there any other sort of passions in your life that, you know, maybe would could have led to career? You mentioned there uh, American football, you know. Oh, <laughs> uh, oh yeah, but that was when it was, it was like 20, 27 years ago. Uh, yeah. I, uh, yeah, obviously, like any kids do, I've never played sport. Have yes, played- basketball. Were you, but is it competitive sport to, you know? Like yeah, yeah, I, I played um, quite competitively, yeah. So I'm sure at some point you had the illusion that you were going. Oh, definitely. To yeah. So I thought know, I was going to be the NBA. <laughs> exactly. There you go. So you you are in the barbell when you're 18, 17. You only do that, and you know you feel invincible until something happened to your body. So yeah, I guess. But obviously, when you look at it now, and you realize, in terms of contact sport, most of these guys uh, and and actually professional athletes don't last that long. The life expectancy of professional athlete. It's not very uh, no. fabulous. So you, when you think about that, you, you realize that probably that might not be the, the best version of my life now, <laughs> but it's not the worst. So, and I, I, yeah, no, I'm happy that I was able to enjoy it myself early <laughs> get out of this. Yeah, I, I bet. Uh, and, and just to wrap up, I'm wondering if there's maybe some advice you could give to um, future students or maybe current PhD students, you know, whether that's studying philosophy or, or something else. Yeah, um, so don't underestimate the importance of your work. Uh, you will probably learn how important it once it was once it has sort of uh, made the breakthrough. Uh, and you know, a couple of uh, papers that we published, uh, I never really thought it would be going somewhere. And uh, when you look at the number of times that being cited, uh, people are mentioning it, uh, it's, it's quite a... A surprise. So yeah. So if you're a PhD and you truly believe that your work worth to be, uh, you know, develop and, ex- and and explore, just keep doing it. And as I mentioned, it, it will attract its own uh, interest. And um, yeah, I'm not sure if it's an advice. Yeah, no, that, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, no, some great advice, I think. Uh, well, look, that brings us to the end of the podcast. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, Frederick. Thanks, Thanks so for much having for, me, um, Sam. Thanks for having me. For joining me. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for listening to the ACES podcast. For more episodes like this one, be sure to subscribe wherever it is you get your podcasts. You can also find more information about ACES on our website, electromaterials.edu.au. There you'll find links to our various social media platforms. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Samuel Finlay. Until next time, thanks for listening.